said, why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. And for love of you. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again today as we dive deep on the law of love and we examine that law throughout salvation history. We dare to ask the question, why? Why did he have to come at all and take upon flesh? Why did he have to die on a cross and endure the passion that he endured for us? Why did did he have to be raised from the dead? And why did he have to ascend and sit at the right hand of God in heaven? Why not just snap his fingers and reconcile all mankind to himself? I mean, isn't he God? And if he's God, then why? That's the question we dive deep on today. But before we begin, that intro song was uh, For Love of You by Audrey Assad. And you can find a link to her site as well as the entire show notes for today's episode at my site at www.catholichack.com. Look for the Behold the Man show on the law of love. Now, let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. All glory and praise be to you, Almighty God, as we come before you again to dive deep into your word, to study and to learn, to draw closer to you, O Lord. And so we ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us that we might be just enriched with your revelation, that we might draw close and and have you enter our hearts to take possession of our lives. We wish to so soak in your word and your truth, 
that it just comes out of every single pore of our existence, that we will share, share it and radiate it and become the light in a dark world to all those whom you place in our path. We pray especially for the unity of all believers in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We pray for holiness without which we cannot attain heaven. We pray for love, that we will understand what love truly is. We pray that you will reveal this love to us, revealing yourself to us in our daily lives. We ask to give the gift of ourselves back to you, O Lord, that you will accept this gift and may it glorify your name and reveal you to all those in our lives. We ask Our Lady to pray for us as we attempt this giant feat. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this coming week I will be giving a talk at the University of Houston, the law center there. The It's called the uh, St. Thomas More Society. It's a group of um, law students, aspiring lawyers who are Catholics and who get together and ask some speakers to come in on occasion and to talk about things. Well, they've invited me, praise God and amen, and I'm very excited about the opportunity. And so I'm going to be talking about this law of love through salvation history. And I thought I would spend the time today on the show talking about that, about what the law of love is and how we can see it playing itself out through salvation history. And so I'll hit the peaks, the highlights of that talk today on the show. And hopefully, Lord willing, I can record that talk and maybe you can hear the full talk uh, later on my feed at catholichack.com. Well, we've asked the question, why? Why the passion? Why the sacrifice? Why the suffering? And the answer, of course, is love. For God is love. We can read that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 458 says, quote, The Word became flesh, so that thus we might know God's love. In this, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Unquote. What a powerful statement. Why did Jesus come? Why did he take upon flesh and tabernacle amongst us? Because of love. Because God loves us so much that he's willing to sacrifice for us. That gives us a clue, an insight into what love truly is. Love is sacrificial. It is giving of self. It is the gift of self, not only just the gift, but the complete gift, the holding nothing back. You know, as I ponder this topic, the law of love, you know, if I could have written Genesis chapter 2, I think I would have started it with a verse that we, uh, a couple of verses rather, that we bring from St. John's Gospel in chapter 15, verses 12 and 13. Quote, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man should lay down his life 
for his friends. Unquote. That's how I would have started Genesis chapter 2. Because that sets the stage. It gives us the lens by which we can see what Genesis 2 and 3 is really all about. Sacrificial love. Or, as we're about to find out, the lack thereof. It's the law of love. It's the complete gift of self. Reading from Salvifici Dolores. Now, if I mispronounce that, I'm asking you for your forgiveness. I am no Latin scholar, but in an apostolic letter from uh, John Paul II in 1984, basically about the saving mystery of suffering, we read this quote, and this is a paraphrase, really. God gives his son to the world to free men from evil. At the same time, the very word gives, God gave his only son indicates that this liberation must be achieved by the Son through His own suffering, in which the infinite love of the only begotten Son and of the Father is manifested. It's a powerful understanding and insight into the value of suffering. I highly recommend this letter, because suffering is something we can all relate to, some more than others. In fact, just today, I had a conversation with a friend who seems as though they are going through an endless amount of physical suffering in this world. Their whole family is plagued with these medical issues, one after another. You can't see the value of suffering in the light of humankind unless you look at it through the lens of the cross and the sacrifice of our Lord on the cross. His very passion gives meaning and value to all suffering everywhere, no matter what. That's the law of love. That's the gift of self. Now, what I want to show you is how that is played out through salvation history. Now, if you've listened to anything I've ever done on this show, you will know that this is old hat. You've heard this from me a thousand times, and truly, I'm only reiterating. I am, in a sense, regurgitating the the great masters, you know, Scott Hahn and the rest. I've only sat at their feet, listened to their, their teachings, and tried to share it with the rest of the world, pointing back to them as good and valuable resources for you to study. So I highly recommend that you stop by my website and check out the links in the show notes for this episode so that you can go to the source, because that source is far greater than I could ever be. But I want to show you how this law of love, this sacrificial law, this love of gift of self is played out through salvation history. And to do that, we must start in the Garden of Eden. And we're going to see how the Garden of Eden is intimately linked with the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Calvary. For the Garden of Calvary can only be understood in light of the Garden of Eden. And so that's the goal. So we're going to stop along the way in salvation history on a few gardens. All right. To start, we have to look at covenant versus contract. Now I'm going to go fairly quick here because time is limited. So follow along as best you can. Covenant versus contract. Modern man thinks that covenant and contract are equal. In reality, they're not. The biblical story of salvation is played out through a series of covenants. Now, a covenant is not an exchange of property, of commerce. It's not an exchange of services for economy's sake. 
Covenants are the exchange of persons. I give to you myself, and I take my take you to myself. We, we form kinship bonds, and this covenant is is enacted by an oath statement. You know, swearing an oath. Kind of like in a courtroom, where you lay your hand on a Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. We invoke God as the witness and the, the guarantee the guarantor of the covenant. It is up to God to ensure that if we follow the covenant, that blessings are bestowed. But if we break that covenant, it's the curses that are given out. And because of God's hesed, because of his righteousness, because of who God is, he is bound to give out either the blessings or the curses. And we see that through the playing out of the people of God in the wilderness. When they broke God's covenant, they endured God's curses. But why? Because God is a mean old Old Testament God? No, because they broke the covenant oath. They broke their word. And they brought upon themselves the curses. For it was them who said that all God says, let it be done the way God said it. They say that over and over again. A couple of examples are Exodus chapter 24, for instance. So we see the the difference between covenants and contracts. The very Hebrew word sheva literally means to seven oneself. And we see this played out in creation itself. For God created all of the universe in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And he called Adam and Eve to rest in them. The Sabbath day to enter into God's rest. It's a covenanting relationship between God and creation, between Adam and between Eve. So it's covenant is a key uh, issue that we have to understand. If we're going to understand the law of love, the sacrificial gift of self between God and his creation and between man and his bride and man and the rest of mankind. Now let's enter the garden. This is the inner sanctuary of the cosmic temple. The Garden of Eden was designed to be this temple, this sanctuary, where the where God, the presence of God, is made present to man, the holy of holies, if you will. See, when we think of temple, we think of the building in Jerusalem, where we read about in the in the Old Covenant, where Solomon built this temple and where the priests, the Levites, they ministered there. And there was an inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was made manifest through the Shekinah glory cloud. Okay, And then there was an outer sanctuary where the bread of the presence was and the candelabra, the menorah. And then you go out into the courtyard and there was varying areas where the men could be there praying and then the women could be there praying and then the Gentiles could be there praying. And so we saw all these parts of the temple. But all of these parts were merely for they were merely uh, types of the original, which was the Garden of Eden, considered to be the inner sanctuary where God's presence was, where he walked with man, where he dwelt with Adam and with Eve. For instance, you could only enter the garden from the east, just like the temple. In the garden, we found gold and silver and precious jewels, just like the temple. We saw how rivers ran through this garden. Just like in the temple, there were rivers and pools of water there. So we see all this imagery in the Garden of Eden. 
that we see later in the Old Testament being played out and utilized as a motif of the temple and of the tabernacle and of the high priest himself. We also see in this sanctuary, this temple, this inner holy uh, area where God dwells with man, there are two trees. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Now, here's the thing. God commanded Adam and Eve that they could eat from any of this wonderful fruit. It's the best fruit in all of creation right here just for you. But you cannot eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die the death. Now, let me ask you a question. How does anyone know that that they have faith at all unless their faith is tested? And it is through that test that they realize that they do, in fact, have faith. I mean, I could say that I have, you know, cancer. But unless I see any of the effects of cancer, unless I'm tested for cancer, I don't really know whether or not I actually have cancer. It's kind of a lousy analogy to use. But the point is, remains the same. Unless your faith is tested, you do not know whether or not you in fact have faith. And so here is this tree because God gave Adam and Eve perfect free will that they must endure the test to know that their free will is in effect. It's real. It's not just some hallmark greeting card kind of a statement to make. God loves them so much that he's going to give them the choice to serve, to be obedient, to remain in his abiding love and abiding grace, or to, of their own free will, break their word and endure the curses of the covenant. So in this garden, the sanctuary where man was dwelling with God face to face, there was this tree of which they could not eat. But there was another tree, the tree of life, the tree that gave them life, even though they were created for immortality, abiding in the grace of God and his love was truly present to them. Yet still there was this tree of life, the fruit of which gave them life. Okay? Now, they would be prevented from eating this tree of life here in a little a few minutes. Now, Adam was seen as a priest, a prophet, and a king. For instance, we see how in Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam the command that he is to keep and protect the garden. Very specific Hebrew words, abudah and shamar. Now, these abudah and the shamar, these two Greek words were used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the duty of the priests in the tabernacle. For instance, uh, the book of Numbers, chapter 3, verse uh, 7 and 8 and following, there's other references, but we see in these references how the Levitical priests were given the command to abudah and shamar to keep and protect the tabernacle, to minister the tabernacle, to act as priests. And so, It's not so much that Adam is copying the future priests or reading into it. It's more like the priests in the wilderness and the priest in the the temple that Solomon built were thinking of themselves, were seeing their own uh, duties, their own job in light of Adam, for they were new Adams. Does that make sense? So Adam was designed from the very beginning to be a priest, Okay, And that would be copied later on. For instance, we see how Aaron under Moses was clothed with garments, just like Adam, who was clothed with garments by God. 
Okay, God commanded Moses to clothe uh, Adam like the sword-wielding priest protecting the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 17, Adam too is tasked with uh, Shamar or protecting the garden sanctuary and all who are in it, namely his bride, Eve. He's a king, this Adam, because we read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, how he is given dominion over all of the rest of creation. In fact, he is told in Genesis 2 to go out and number our name, rather, all the animals. He, is ha- he has a, a kingly dominion over all of the rest of creation. So he's a priest, he's a prophet, and he's a king. Now this Eve, she is a type of a temple. She is the queen. She is a mother, okay? Like the temple, which is Bana, which is built. We see how King Solomon Bana, the temple, he built the temple. And so Eve is, is built. She is Bana from the rib of Adam. And they had this covenant relationship that is formed on the day of Sabbath, on the seventh day. It is a it is a wonderful insight in how the glory of woman is the crown jewel, as Dr. Scott Hahn likes to say, the crown jewel of creation. If Adam is the crown, then Eve is the crown jewel. You know, it's a beautiful, beautiful image that Eve as the temple, as the queen, for if Adam is king, then Eve is queen. In fact, Eve would be the mother of all the future lines of kings, right? She is the the mother of all the living, as we read in Genesis chapter 3. So Eve, therefore, is both queen and mother, but from her lineage, from her seed, will come the redeemer of all the world our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, from that seed of the woman which will crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, that that first good news that we read about there in Genesis. We see how she is the future Gibirah, the queen mother. For through her generations, her seed will be the redeemer, how the woman will crush the head of the serpent through her seed. It's a beautiful image that we see played out, not only in the Gospels, but in Revelation chapter 12 as well. Now, we got to kind of move along fairly fast here. We see that test that we talked about, the, the test of the faith. It comes in Genesis chapter 3 at that that most, most intimate of all moments between man and his woman and his wife, the woman when they are both naked and unashamed, when they are bound in the one flesh union, then the great Nahash, the dragon, the serpent, comes on the scene and he interdicts between them in a very uh, bold, a very uh, sort of a, a brute kind of a way, you know, bullying Adam and Eve. You know, this Nahash, this Hebrew word Nahash, doesn't just mean garden snake. It's used to describe the great Leviathan in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1, and sea monsters in Job 27. 613. Okay? See also the ancient serpent, the dragon, in Revelation 12. And so we see the fall of man come when Adam is acting like a coward. And through him, uh, this disobedience where they broke the covenant uh, obedience to God by eating from the tree they were forbidden to eat, both Adam and Eve fall and death enters into humanity. For on that day, they did die the death. Their soul died and they were cast out of the garden. And the cherubim with a fiery wielding sword is there to prevent them from coming in and eating from the tree of life, lest they live in their sins for eternity. And so this sets the stage, okay, for the encounter with God. 
when he walks in the garden of the cool of the day and calls Adam and Eve out of the bushes. They were hiding and covering themselves, for they realized that they were naked and they were stripped of the purple robe in which they were created. Okay? And so God has this confession with him, and he doles out penance, for Adam will have to go into the thorns and the thistles and work the land, and the the sweat of blood will drop from his forehead onto the ground in which he labors so hard to bring forth the fruit. This is penance. This is reconciliation, for after this, God clothes Adam and Eve, restoring their dignity. For even though God is sending them into the wilderness... He still loves them so much. He cares so much for them that he clothes them and restores their dignity. So, cowardice in the Garden of Eden. Drunkenness in the Garden of Noah, Genesis 8 and 9. After Noah is placed on the mountain like a new Adam, there he sets up a vineyard. You know, he creates this new covenant with God with a rainbow in the sky as the sign. And he creates a vineyard, a new garden. But there is a new fall with the new Adam because this Noah gets drunk and his son Ham looks upon the nakedness of his his mother, okay, Noah's wife, which means he has an ancestral relationship. He's trying to steal away the significance, the authority of his father so he can say that if I have my father's wife, that makes me the head of the clan. I am now the king. I am now the chieftain, okay? And we see this being played out again in other places under King David, for example. Okay, well, Ham is the father of Canaan. He's the father of Egypt. He's the father of Assyria and Babylon. Well, guess what? All of those people will one day persecute the firstborn son of God, Israel. This is a very significant moment for the drunkenness in the garden of Noah will come back to haunt the people of God. There is faithfulness or faithlessness rather in the garden of Abraham in Genesis 22. This is the man who in faith steps out in faith. Well, guess what? He doubts God's promise to have children. You know, that his children will be numbered of the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky. And yet it does come true. And on a mountain, this man who now walks with God, the new Adam, he offers up his only son on the very same mountain on that God will come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, and carry wood up that same mountain to be sacrificed. So Isaac is trying to is being sacrificed on that mountain, who volunteers himself to back to his father in this sacrifice. But an angel will stay his hand and say, no, no, no. Now I know you've given yourself over to me in complete faith, but don't kill this boy. For you don't kill your son because I will send my own son to die for the rest of the world. It's a powerful moment in salvation history. We also see idolatry under the garden of Moses, there on the mountain of Sinai. There the people, they lose their faith after receiving heavenly bread in this exodus, come down from heaven on their way to the promised land when they cross the Jordan River through the waters of the Jordan. They enter into the promised land, but there in the, in the mountain of Sinai, in the wilderness, they turn their hearts away from God, back to the false gods of Egypt, and they worship a golden cow. And so Moses, this new Adam who walks with God, he now has to set up the Levitical priesthood, taking away the priesthood of the firstborn and giving it to the Levites. 
And so we see all of these episodes, how the law of love, the lack of self-sacrifice on behalf of the people of God, plays itself over and over again through David and through Solomon, until finally we make our way to to the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26. A new Adam has come, the definitive Adam. Unlike the old Adam, Jesus cries out in a garden by a tree when faced with physical danger. Adam remains silent in the face of Satan, the great Nahash, by a tree in a garden. Jesus cries out. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 and following. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Unquote. Jesus Christ, the new Adam, in a garden, by a tree, faced with physical fear. Instead of being a coward and allowing the woman to do all the talking, he stands in the gap between Satan and mankind, his bride, us. And he cries out to God and offers himself up to physical death because through it, he gives us the new fruit of the womb, of the new Eve the fruit that hangs on a tree, the tree of life in the garden of Calvary, John 19, 41, that if we come to this tree of life and we eat his body and drink his blood, we will have life forever. For man can do nothing better than to lay down his life for a friend out of love. It's the law of love. May God richly bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Based on digital.